Thank you, Elder Haight. I'd play on your team any time. This evening, brother, and I'd have a strong desire to relate to you a, an aspect of a well-documented uh, story, but it's little known in the Church. It involves the courage, the strength of a few young men from the pioneer era. Some were priest or teacher age, like many of you assembled here tonight. These young men willingly made significant sacrifices when they received a call. As I tell their story, please keep in mind what power it is that unifies us and also connects us to them. The royal priesthood we bear is more than coincidental to this account. Theirs was the same priesthood which today empowers you to perform great and small acts of service to your fellow men. Ordinary men, including and perhaps especially young men, blessed with the privilege of holding the priesthood of God, may be called upon to do extraordinary tasks. Holders of the holy priesthood can accomplish mighty feats of heroism, bravery, and serveth through faith and that sacred power. The pioneers did not doubt it. They bore frequent witness that the Spirit of the Lord guided and directed them. In confirmation of their testimony, I declare unto you, His Spirit is with each of us. He desires to bless us and strengthen us. He will make us equal to every righteous task we undertake in His name. He will magnify many times over our own natural ability. You can succeed beyond your own strength if you learn to rely on the Spirit of the Lord. Now, the story I promised to tell you began before the October 1856 General Conference, but that is where we will begin. President Brigham Young stood at the old tabernacle pulpit on this square and issued a call to go rescue the Willie and Martin handcart companies. Two days later, about 30 faithful brethren with good mule teams were dispatched to go bring in the handcarters, stranded several hundred miles east. Dan Jones, a convert of less than five years, volunteered. After arduous effort, the Willie Company finally was found. Caught in the storms of early winter, the Saints were freezing and starving to death. The relief party did all they could to improve conditions, but for some it was simply too late. The morning after the rescuers' arrival, nine of the company were buried in a common grave. Some of the rescuers were assigned to escort the hand carters to the Salt Lake Valley, but others pushed further eastward in an effort to find the Martin Company. Finally, they were found, along with the Hodgett and Hunt Wagon Companies, bogged down and helpless in the snow east of Devil's Gate, Wyoming. Members of the Martin Company were in dire straits. Their food rations had been cut to a few ounces of flour per day. Only a third of them could walk, and deaths were recorded daily. The leaders of the rescue party wisely decided to spare no effort in getting the suffering survivors to safety in the Salt Lake Valley. Because of the shortage of space in the wagons, 
It was necessary to leave most of the hand carter's possessions in storage at Devil's Gate till spring. Brother Dan Jones and two others from the relief party, along with 17 young men from the wagon companies, were called to stay behind to guard the property. They were left to face five winter months in Wyoming, hundreds of miles from help, with scarcely anything to eat and under conditions of extreme privation. Imagine the sacrifice. Offers were made to each man to join the wagons bound for the valley, but every one of them chose to stay behind, obedient to the call to serve. That winter was recorded as one of the most severe ever. The intrepid watchmen struggled to repair the cabins at Devil's Gate, killed the remaining cattle, stored the tough, stringy beef for food, and reconditioned and stacked the goods they were left to protect. They killed a few buffalo, but the hunting became bad. Soon they were reduced to living on animal hides from which they scraped off the hair, then boiled the leather. They ate the leather wrappings off the wagon tongues, old moccasin soles, and a well-worn buffalo hide that had been used as a foot mat for two months. At one point, Dan Jones was literally preparing to eat his own saddle. In February of that extreme winter, a member of the Snake Indian tribe visited and helped them. That first night, he and two scouts came to camp, loaded with good buffalo meat. The winter passed, and finally, early in May, the relief wagons began to roll in. Of the various communications Brother Jones received, one critical letter from Brigham Young had not arrived. Loading and shipping of the stored goods could not commence without it. For days they waited, becoming increasingly anxious. Finally, Brother Jones sought the Lord in prayer to know how to proceed. He recorded the following testimony, and I quote, Next morning, without saying anything about the lack of instructions, we commenced business. Soon someone asked whose teams were to be loaded first, and I dictated to my clerk. Thus we continued. As fast as the clerk put them down, order would be given, and we passed on to the next. We continued this way for four days. All the teams were loaded up, companies organized, and started back to the valley." Close quote. The seventeen young men were loaded on the last wagons departing to the Salt Lake Valley, where they would be reunited with their families and loved ones. Brother Jones arrived later to report to President Young, feeling not a little uncertain how he would be received. Should he have waited for the President's written orders? As everything unfolded, it was learned that Brigham Young had indeed dictated a letter of instructions which was never received. Dan carefully presented his detailed report. It was a testimony to him to find that the inspiration he had received in Wyoming was exactly the same as in the Prophet's letter. Dan Jones's young men had done more than they ever would have imagined they could. They had crossed the plains in wagons and by handcart, mostly on foot. 
They had seen many of their friends and relatives die along the way. They had volunteered to spend the winter 300 miles from their destination. They had survived a harsh winter with little food and few, if any, comforts. They had heeded the call of the prophet to serve their fellow saints. They had endured to the end nobly and were blessed for their efforts. I repeat, repeat, brethren, ordinary men, blessed with the privilege of holding the priesthood of God, may be called upon to do extraordinary tasks and accomplish mighty feats through faith in that sacred power. One of my Book of Mormon heroes, Ammon, the great son of Mosiah, explains how much two people can accomplish when one of them is the Lord. Quote, Yea, I know that I am nothing. As to my strength, I am weak. Therefore, I will not boast of myself, but I will boast of my God. For in him and in his strength, I can do all things. Yea, behold, many mighty miracles we have wrought in this land, for which we will praise his name forever. To you, young men of the Aaronic Priesthood, and to you, brethren of the Melchizedek Priesthood, I witness that we can perform many mighty miracles, as testified by Ammon and by Dan Jones. They took the Lord as their guide, listened to and obeyed the Holy Spirit, and learned that they could indeed perform mighty miracles, which thing they never had supposed. Our own challenges in this day will be great. Our needs will be significant. Our loyalty to great gospel truths must be no less valiant than those young men over 140 years ago. It is my prayer, brethren, that each of us will make the Lord and His revealed word through His servants, the prophets, the guiding influence in our lives. Each of us has a miracle to perform, a journey to complete, and a marvelous mission to fulfill. May Heavenly Father bless you to know that you are one of His chosen sons in a blessed and royal generation, and that He has mighty miracles for you to perform. With His strength and the guidance of the Spirit, you too can do all things to which I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This year, 1997, commemorates the 150th anniversary since the pioneers, under the inspired leadership of Brigham Young, entered the valley of the Great Salt Lake and proclaimed, This is the right place. Drive on. Much will be said at this conference concerning that epical event, and thanks will be given to God for His watchful care and guidance. On this beautiful Sabbath morning, I wish to make a few remarks concerning other pioneers who preceded that trek. In doing so, I pause and ponder the dictionary definition of the word pioneer, one who goes before, showing others 
the way to follow. Let us turn back the clock of time and journey to other places that we might review several who I feel meet the high standard of the word pioneer. Such a one was Moses, raised in Pharaoh's court and learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He became mighty in words and deeds. One cannot separate Moses, the great lawgiver, from the tablets of stone provided him by God and on which were written the Ten Commandments. They were binding then, they are binding now. Moses endured constant frustration as some of his trusted followers returned to their previous ways. Though he was disappointed in their actions, yet he loved them and led them, even the children of Israel, from their Egyptian bondage. Certainly, Moses qualifies as a pioneer. Another who qualifies is Ruth, who forsook her people, her kindred, and her country in order to accompany her mother-in-law, Naomi, worshiping Jehovah in his land and adopting the ways of his people. How very important was Ruth's obedience to Naomi and the resulting marriage to Boaz, by which she, the foreigner and a Moabite convert, became a great-grandmother of David and therefore an ancestress of Jesus Christ. The book of the Holy Bible that bears her name contains language poetic in style, reflective of her spirit of determination and courage. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee, for whither thou goest I will go, and where thou lodgest I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. Yes, Ruth, precious Ruth, was a pioneer. Other faithful women also qualify, such as Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, Esther, and Elizabeth. Let us not overlook Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, nor fail to include Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and some from a later period. We remember John the Baptist. His clothing was simple, his life spartan, his message brief, faith, repentance, baptism by immersion, and the bestowal of the Holy Ghost by an authority greater than that possessed by himself. He declared, I am not the Christ, but I am sent before him. I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. The River Jordan marked the historic meeting place when Jesus came down from Galilee to be baptized of John. At first John pleaded with the Master, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? Came the response, It becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And, lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And, lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. 
John freely declared and taught, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Of John the Lord declared, Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Like so many other pioneers through the annals of history, John wore the martyr's crown. Many who were pioneers in spirit and action were called by Jesus to be his apostles. Much could be told of each one of them. Peter was among the first of Jesus' disciples. Peter the fisherman, in response to a divine call, laid aside his nets and hearkened to the Master's declaration, Come, follow me, and I will make you a fisher of men. I never think of Peter without admiring his testimony of the Lord. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. John the Beloved is the only one of the twelve recorded as being at the crucifixion of Christ. From the cruel cross, Jesus uttered the magnificent charge to John, referring to his mother, Mary, Behold thy mother, and to Mary, Behold thy son. The apostles went before, showing others the way to follow. They were pioneers. History records, however, that most men did not come unto Christ, nor did they follow the way he taught. Crucified was the Lord. Slain were most of the apostles. Rejected was the truth. The bright sunlight of enlightenment slipped away, and the lengthening shadows of a black night enshrouded the earth. Generations before, Isaiah had prophesied, Darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people. Amos had foretold of a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. The dark ages of history seem never to end. Would no heavenly messengers make their appearance? In due time, honest men with yearning hearts, at the peril of their very lives, attempted to establish points of reference that they might find the true way. The day of the Reformation was dawning. But the path ahead was difficult. Persecutions would be severe, personal sacrifice overwhelming, and the cost beyond calculation. The Reformers were pioneers, blazing wilderness trails in a desperate search for those lost points of reference which they felt, when found, would lead mankind back to the truth Jesus taught. John Wycliffe, Martin Luther, John Hus, Zwingli, Knox, Calvin, and Tyndall all pioneered the period of the Reformation. Significant to me was the declaration of Tyndall, said to his critics, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scripture than thou doest. Such were the teachings and lives of the great Reformers. Their deeds were heroic. Their contributions many, their sacrifices great, but they did not restore the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of the Reformers, one could ask, was their sacrifice in vain? Was their struggle futile? I answer with a 
carefully phrased no. The Holy Bible was now within the grasp of the people. Each person could better find his or her way. Oh, if only all could read and all could understand. But some could read and others could hear and all had access to God through prayer. The long-awaited day of restoration did indeed come. But let us review that significant event in the history of the world by recalling the testimony of the plowboy who became a prophet, the witness who was there, even Joseph Smith. Describing his experience, Joseph said, I was one day reading the epistle of James, first chapter and fifth verse. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. At length I came to the conclusion that I must either remain in darkness and confusion, or else I must do as James directs, that is, ask of God. I retired to the woods to make the attempt. It was on the morning of a beautiful, clear day, early in the spring of 1820. I kneeled down and began to offer up the desires of my heart to God. I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head, above the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. The Father and the Son, Jesus Christ, had appeared to Joseph Smith. The morning of the dispensation of the fullness of times had come, dispelling the darkness of the long generations of spiritual night. Volumes have been written concerning the life and accomplishments of Joseph Smith, but for our purposes here today, perhaps a highlight or two will suffice. He was visited by the angel Moroni. He translated from the precious plates to which he was directed the Book of Mormon, with its new witness of Christ to all the world. He was the instrument in the hands of the Lord through whom came mighty revelations pertaining to the establishment of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In the course of his ministry, he was visited by John the Baptist, Moses, Elijah, Peter, James, and John that the restoration of all things might be accomplished. He endured persecution. He suffered grievously, as did his followers. He trusted in God. He was true to his prophetic calling. He commenced a marvelous missionary effort to the entire world, which today brings light and truth to the souls of mankind. At length, Joseph Smith died the martyr's death as did his brother Hiram. Joseph Smith was a pioneer indeed. Turning the pages of scriptural history from beginning to end, we learn of the ultimate pioneer, even Jesus Christ. 
His birth was foretold by the prophets of old. His entry upon the stage of life was announced by an angel. His life and his ministry have transformed the world. With the birth of the babe in Bethlehem, there emerged a great endowment, a power stronger than weapons, a wealth more lasting than the coins of Caesar. This child was to be the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the promised Messiah, even Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Born in a stable, cradled in a manger, he came forth from heaven to live on earth as mortal man and to establish the kingdom of God. During his earthly ministry, he taught men the higher law. His glorious gospel reshaped the thinking of the world. He blessed the sick. He caused the lame to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear. He even raised the dead to life. One sentence from the book of Acts speaks volumes. Jesus went about doing good, for God was with him. He taught us to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. In the garden known as Gethsemane, where his suffering was so great that blood came from his pores, he pleaded as he prayed, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He taught us to serve. Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. He taught us to forgive. I, the Lord, will forgive whom I will forgive. But of you it is required to forgive all men. He taught us to love. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Like the true pioneer he was, he invited, Come, follow me. Let us turn to Capernaum. There Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came to the master, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed and she shall live. Then came the news from the ruler's house, Thy daughter is dead. Christ responded, Be not afraid, only believe. He came to the house, passed by the mourners, and said to them, Why make ye this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn knowing that she was dead. He put them all out, and he took her by the hand and said unto her, Damsel, I say to thee, arise. And they were astonished. It is emotionally draining for me to recount the events leading up to the crucifixion of the Master. I cringe when I read the words of Pilate, responding to cries of the throng, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate took water 
and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Jesus was mocked. He was spit upon, and a crown of thorns placed upon his head. He was given vinegar to drink. They crucified him. His body was placed in a borrowed tomb, but no tomb could hold the body of the Lord. On the morning of the third day came the welcome message to Mary Magdalene, to Mary the mother of James, and to other women who were with them as they came to the tomb, saw the large entrance stone rolled away, and noted the tomb was empty. Two angels said to the weeping women, Why seekest ye the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Yes, the Lord had indeed risen. He appeared to Mary. He was seen by Cephas or Peter, then by his brethren of the twelve. He was seen by Joseph Smith, who declared, This is the testimony last of all which we give of him, that he lives. For we saw him even on the right hand of God our mediator, our redeemer, our brother, our advocate with the Father, died for our sins and the sins of all mankind. The Atonement of Jesus Christ is the foreordained but voluntary act of the only begotten Son of God. He offered His life as a redeeming ransom for us all. His mission, His ministry among men, his teachings of truth, his acts of mercy, his unwavering love for us prompts our gratitude and warms our hearts. Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, even the Son of God, was and is the ultimate pioneer, for he has gone before, showing all others the way to follow him. May we ever follow our Lord. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I endorse that which has been said this evening. I hope that you've listened well and taken note. President Monson has spoken on retaining the convert. I endorse what he has said and wish to speak somewhat further on this same subject. I feel very strongly about it. Each year, a substantial number of people become members of the Church, largely through missionary efforts. Last year, there were 321,385 converts comprised of men, women, and children. This is a large enough number and then some in one single year to constitute 100 new stakes of Zion. 100 new stakes per year. Think of it. This places upon each of us an urgent and pressing need to fellowship those who join our ranks. It is not an easy thing to become a member of this Church. In most cases, it involves setting aside old habits, leaving old friends and associations, and stepping into a new society which is different and somewhat demanding. With the ever-increasing number of converts, we must make an increasingly substantial effort to assist them as they find their way.
Every one of them needs three things, a friend, a responsibility, and nurturing with the good word of God. It is our duty and opportunity to provide these things. To illustrate, I think I'd like to share with you one of my failures. I suppose some people think I've never experienced failure. I have. Let me tell you one such instance. Sixty-three years ago, while serving as a missionary in the British Isles, my companion and I taught, and it was my pleasure to baptize a young man. He was well-educated. He was refined. He was studious. I was so proud of this gifted young man who had come into the Church. I felt he had all of the qualifications someday to become a leader among our people. He was in the course of making the big adjustment from convert to member. For a short period before I was released, mine was the opportunity to be his friend. Then I was released to return home. He was given a small responsibility in the branch in London. He knew nothing of what was expected of him. He made a mistake. The head of the organization where he served was a man I can best describe as being short on love and long on criticism. In a rather unmerciful way, he went after my friend who had made the simple mistake. The young man left our rented hall that night, smarting and hurt by his superior officer. He said to himself, if that is the kind of people they are, then I'm not going back. He drifted into inactivity. Years passed. The war came on, and he served in the British forces. His first wife died. After the war, he married a woman whose father was a Protestant minister. That did not help his belief. When I was in England, I tried desperately to find him. His file contained no record of a current address. I came home, and finally, after a long search, was able to track him down. I wrote to him. He responded, but with no mention of the gospel. When next I was in London, I again searched for him. The day I was to leave, I found him. I called him, and we met in the underground station. He threw his arms around me as I did around him. I had very little time before I had to catch my plane, but we talked briefly, and what with what I think was a rather true regard for one another. He gave me another embrace before I left. I determined that I would never lose track of him again. Through the years I wrote to him letters that I hoped would give encouragement and incentive to return to the Church. He wrote in reply without mentioning the Church. The years passed. I grew older, as did he. He retired from his work and moved to Switzerland. On one occasion when I was in Switzerland, <coughs> excuse me, I went out of my way to find the village where he lived. We spent the better part of a day together, he, his wife, my wife, and myself. We had a wonderful time, but it was evident that the fire of faith had long since died. I tried every way I knew, but I could not find a way to rekindle it. I continued my correspondence. I sent him books, magazines, recordings of the Tabernacle Choir, and other things for which he expressed appreciation. He died a few months ago. His wife wrote me to inform me of this. 
She said, You were the best friend he ever had. Tears coursed my cheeks when I read that letter. I knew I had failed. Perhaps if I had been there to pick him up when he was first knocked down, he might have made a different thing of his life. I think I could have helped him then. I think I could have dressed the wound from which he suffered. I have only one comfort. I tried. I have only one sorrow. I failed. The challenge now is greater than it has ever been because the number of converts is greater than we have ever before known. A program for retaining and strengthening the convert will soon go out to all the Church. I plead with you, brethren, I ask of you, each of you, to become a part of this great effort. Every convert is precious. Every convert is a son or daughter of God. Every convert is a great and serious responsibility. Moroni long ago spoke of these people with whom we deal in this day and time. Said he, Neither did they receive any unto baptism, save they came forth with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, and witnessed unto the Church that they truly repented of all their sins. And none were received unto baptism, save they took upon them the name of Christ, having a determination to serve him to the end. I believe, my brethren, that these converts have a testimony of the gospel. I believe they have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and know of his divine reality. I believe they have truly repented of their sins and have a determination to serve the Lord. Moroni continues concerning them after they are baptized. And after they had been received unto baptism and were wrought upon and cleansed by the power of the Holy Ghost, they were numbered among the people of the Church of Christ, and their names were taken that they might be remembered and nourished by the good word of God to keep them in the right way to keep them continually watchful under prayer, relying alone upon the merits of Christ, who was the author and the finisher of their faith. In these days, as in those days, converts are numbered among the people of the Church to be remembered and nourished by the good word of God, to keep them in the right way, to keep them continually watchful under prayer. Brethren, let us help them as they take their first steps as members. This is a work for everyone. It is a work for home teachers and visiting teachers. It is a work for the bishopric, for the priesthood quorums, for the Relief Society, the young men and young women, even the primary. I was in a fast and testimony meeting only last Sunday. <clears throat> A 15- or 16-year-old boy stood before the congregation and said that he had decided to be baptized. Then one by one, boys of the teachers' quorum stepped to the microphone to express their love for him, to tell him that he was doing the right thing, and to assure him that they would stand with him and help him. It was a wonderful experience to hear those young men 
speak words of appreciation and encouragement to their friend. I am satisfied that all of those boys, including the one who was baptized last week, will go on missions. In a recent press interview, I was asked, what brings you the greatest satisfaction as you see the work of the Church today? My response, the most satisfying experience I have is to see what this gospel does for people. It gives them a new outlook on life. It gives them a perspective that they've never felt before. It raises their sights to things noble and divine. Something happens to them that is miraculous to behold. They look to Christ and come alive. Now, brethren, I ask each of you to please help in this undertaking. Your friendly ways are needed. Your sense of responsibility is needed. The Savior of all mankind left the ninety and nine to find the one lost. That one who was lost need not have become lost. But if he is out there somewhere in the shadows, and if it means leaving the ninety and nine, we must do so to find him. Now, I think that's all I'll say this evening about this, except to say that, in my view, nothing is of greater importance. I now wish to move to another subject. I wish to speak to the young men. I see many of them here this evening. You look a little tired, boys. <laughs> I won't be at it much longer. I have as my text Paul's letters to his young friend and associate, Timothy. I've quoted from these letters extensively to missionaries, and now I speak to you as missionaries yet to be. I picture Paul as the old, battered teacher of truth. He writes to his young friend in whom he has confidence and for whom he has a great love. He says, among other things, We both labor, labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Paul was persecuted and driven. He was hated and despised. Eventually his life was taken because he fearlessly bore witness of the Redeemer of all men. We must be prepared to do likewise. As Nephi proclaimed, we talk of Christ. We rejoice in Christ. We preach of Christ. We prophesy of Christ. And we write according to our prophecies that our children may know to what source they may look for a remission of their sins. Writes Paul further to Timothy, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Those whom we teach will overlook our youth if in our conversations, in charity, in spirit, in faith, and in the purity of our lives, we reflect the Spirit of Christ. Boys, we cannot indulge in swearing. We cannot be guilty of profanity. 
We cannot indulge in impure thoughts, words, and acts and have the Spirit of the Lord with us. Paul goes on to say, Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Who are the presbytery? They are the elders of the Church. Each of you deacons, teachers, and priests has been ordained by one having the proper authority, in most cases by your fathers or bishops. You have been given a great and precious gift. You can speak truth. You must speak truth. You can bear testimony of the great and good things of the gospel. This is your gift. Neglect it not. Paul continues, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear me, hear thee. <clears throat> As you work with your associates to help them with their faith, you will save them and also yourselves. Again, Paul's counsel to Timothy. Keep thyself pure. Those are simple words, but they're ever so important. Paul is saying, in effect, stay away from those things which will tear you down and destroy you spiritually. Stay away from television shows which lead to unclean thoughts and unclean language. Stay away from videos which will lead to evil thoughts. They won't help you. They will only hurt you. Stay away from books and magazines which are sleazy and filthy and what they say and portray. Keep thyself pure. Continuing with the words of Paul, For the love of money is the root of all evil. It is the love of money and the love of those things which money can buy which destroys us. We all need money to supply our needs, but it is the love of it which hurts us which warps our values, which leads us away from spiritual things and fosters selfishness and greed. And now I come to Paul's great statement. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. It is not God who has given us the spirit of fear. This comes from the adversary. So many of us are fearful of what our peers will say, that we will be looked upon with disdain and criticized if we stand for what is right. But I remind you that wickedness never was happiness. Evil never was happiness. Sin never was happiness. Happiness lies in the power and the love and the sweet simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need not be prudish. We need not slink off in a corner, as it were. We need not be ashamed. We have the greatest thing in the world, the gospel of the risen Lord. Paul gives us a mandate. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. As deacons, teachers, and priests, 
ordained to the holy priesthood, we can stand tall and without equivocation or fear declare our testimony of Jesus Christ. Further from Paul, study to shew thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. If we were called upon to stand before God and give an accounting of ourselves, could we do it without embarrassment? This is Paul's great plea to his young friend. It is his plea to each of you. He goes on to say, Shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. He's warning against us fooling around, wasting our time, talking about useless things. Idleness leads to evil. He continues, Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. It was Sir Galahad who said, My strength is as the strength of ten, because my heart is pure. We cannot say it frequently enough. Turn away from youthful lusts. Stay away from drugs. They can absolutely destroy you. Avoid them as you would a terrible disease, for that is what they become. Avoid foul and filthy talk. It can lead to destruction. Be absolutely honest. Dishonesty can corrupt and destroy. Observe the word of wisdom. You cannot smoke. You must not smoke. You must not chew tobacco. You cannot drink liquor. You hold the priesthood of God. You must rise above these things which beckon with a seductive call. Be prayerful. Call on the Lord in faith, and he will hear your prayers. He loves you. He wishes to bless you. He will do so if you live worthy of his blessing. You face great challenges that lie ahead. You are moving into a world of fierce competition. You must get all of the education you can. The Lord has instructed us concerning the importance of education. It will qualify you for greater opportunities. It will equip you to do something worthwhile in the great world of opportunity that lies ahead. If you can go to college and that is your wish, then do it. If you have no desire to attend college, then go to a vocational or business school to sharpen your skills and increase your capacity. Prepare now to go on a mission. It will not be a burden. It will not be a waste of time. It will be a great opportunity and a great challenge. It will do something for you that nothing else will do for you. It will sharpen your skills. It will train you in leadership. It will bring testimony and conviction into your heart. You will bless the lives of others as you bless your own. It will bring you nearer to God and to his divine Son as you bear witness and testimony of him. Your knowledge of the gospel will strengthen and deepen. Your love for your fellow man will increase. Your fears will fade as you stand boldly in testimony of the truth. We love you, boys, our dear young associates in this great work. 
We pray for you that you may be faithful and true. We count on you to prepare yourselves to take our places in the great work of moving forward the work of God. Get on your knees and pray every day, night and morning. Look to your fathers and mothers and follow their counsel. Look to your bishop and his counselors. They will lead you in the direction you should go. Look to God and live. You have come into the world in a great season in this the work of the Lord. No other generation has had quite the same opportunities that you have and will have. Begin now to establish those goals which will bring you happiness. Education in your chosen skill or branch of learning, whatever it may be. A mission in which to surrender yourself entirely to the work of the Lord to do His work. Future marriage in the house of the Lord to a wonderful and delightful companion of whom you will be worthy because of the way you have lived. May the Lord bless you, my dear young friends. May his watch care be over you to preserve and protect and guide you. He has a great work for you. Do not fail him. I leave my love and my blessing with you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Brother Haight, don't you be embarrassed about playing on a losing team. You're a winner. Brother Faust, don't you worry about having to pray or to give the lesson as an ironic priesthood holder. Think of Brother Richard Edgeley a conference or two ago. He revealed a hidden secret. As a basketball player, he missed 24 consecutive foul pitches. Can you believe it? I think I would not have mentioned that. But when I was a boy, I had my moments. I was a pretty good fast-pitch softball player, but a, just an average basketball player. I hadn't played the first half of the game, but I was so excited. I wanted to get in there. I wanted to move down toward that basket. I wanted to score. And right after the beginning of the second half, I got my opportunity. The ball came to me, and I dribbled the ball down the floor, wondering in my mind why the forwards and the guards of the other team were letting me through. And then as I went up for the shot, I realized why. I was shooting at the wrong basket. I learned the efficacy of prayer. I said, Heavenly Father, don't let that ball go in. And you know, it rimmed the hoop around and around and fell out. And I had thanks in my heart. And then all the young ladies whom we were trying to impress began a mighty cheer. We want Monson. We want Monson. We want Monson out. <laughs> and the coach obliged. Well, I've been thinking of another sport tonight. I'd like to say a few words about it. Several years ago, an unusual motion picture swept the theaters in this and in other lands. It was entitled Field of Dreams and was the story of a young man who revered the baseball players of his youth, and from this foundation carved out a large section from his cornfield and located there a full-blown baseball diamond. It was big. People mocked his foolishness and ridiculed his lack of common sense. The film goes on to show the many challenges that he faced 
in completing the project and readying the baseball diamond for view. His was not an easy task. During the period of doubt as to the future success of his dream, he was driven by the reassuring words, If you build it, they will come. He built it, and come they did. Travelers by the thousands visited this unique place, which was filled with baseball's many memories. Lately, I have reflected on the importance of building, building a bridge to the heart of a person. I think of the nearly 55,000 full-time missionaries who are assigned over much of the world with the divine commission to teach, to testify, and to baptize. Theirs is a bridge-building task, awesome to behold and somewhat overwhelming to contemplate. With God's mandate ringing in their ears, with the Lord's instructions penetrating their hearts, they move forward in their lofty callings. They ponder the Lord's words, however. Remember, the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. Go ye therefore, said the Lord later, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Last year was the centennial of Utah statehood, and many ambassadors from other countries made a visit to our state capitol and also to the Church Administration Building. Many also toured the Missionary Training Center at Provo, Utah. They visited the classes of learning. They heard the testimonies of those going to their respective fields of labor. They marveled at the language proficiency, the faith, and the love exhibited by the missionaries. One ambassador stated, I observed a sense of purpose, a commitment to prepare and to serve, and a joyful heart in each missionary. These missionaries go forward with faith. They know their duty. They understand that they are a vital link between the persons they will meet as missionaries and the teaching and testifying they will experience as they bring others to the truth of the gospel. They yearn yearn for more persons to teach. They pray for the essential help each member can give to the conversion process. You know, the decision to change one's life and come unto Christ is perhaps the most important decision of mortality. Such a dramatic change is taking place daily throughout the world. Alma chapter 5, verse 13, describes this personal miracle. Quote, and behold, a mighty change was wrought in their hearts, and they humbled themselves and put their trust in the true and living God. End quote. The covenant of baptism spoken of by Alma causes all of us to probe the depths of our souls. Now, as ye are desirous to come into the fold of God and to be called His people and are willing to bear one another's burdens that they may be light, 
Yea, and are willing to mourn with those that mourn. Yea, and comfort those that stand in need of comfort, and to stand as witnesses of God at all times, and in all things, and in all places. Now I say unto you, If this be the desire of your hearts, what have you against being baptized in the name of the Lord, as a witness before him, that ye have entered into a covenant with him, that ye will serve him and keep his commandments, that he may pour out his Spirit more abundantly upon you? Our studies reveal that most of those who embrace the message of the missionaries have had previous exposures to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Perhaps hearing the magnificent Tabernacle Choir perform, maybe reading and viewing press reports of our well-traveled President Gordon B. Hinckley and his skillful participation in broad-ranging interviews, or just in knowing another person who is a member and for whom respect exists. We as members should be at our very best. Our lives should reflect the teachings of the gospel, and our hearts and our voices ever be ready to share the truth. Fellowshipping of the investigator should begin well before baptism. The teachings of the missionaries often need the second witness of a new convert to the Church. It has been my experience that such a witness, born from the heart of one who has undergone this mighty change himself, brings resolve and commitment. When I served as mission president in eastern Canada, we found that in Toronto, as well as in most of the cities of Ontario and Quebec, there was no dearth of willing helpers to accompany the missionaries, to fellowship the investigators, and welcome them to meetings, and then to introduce them to the ward or branch officers and members. Fellowshipping, friendshipping, and reactivating are ongoing in the daily life of a Latter-day Saint. Each new convert should be provided a calling in the Church. Such brings interest, stability, and growth. The task may be somewhat simple, such as that given to Jacob de Auger when he and his family became members while living in Toronto. He held lofty posts in business, but his first calling in the Church was to put the hymn books in place along the pews. He took his assignment seriously. In recollecting this first calling, he said, I had to be present each week or the hymn books would remain undistributed. As you know, Elder Diager later served many years as a member of the First Quorum of the Seventy, though he had many demanding responsibilities as a general authority. He never forgot his first calling in the Church. The unseen hand of the Lord guides the efforts of those who strive to learn and live the truth of the gospel. As a mission president, I received a weekly letter from each missionary, one that pleased me greatly. It came from a young elder serving in Hamilton. He and his companion were working with a lovely family, a young couple with two children. The couple felt that the message was true. They could not deny their desire to be baptized. The wife, however, 
worried about her mother and father in faraway western Canada, fearing she and her husband would be disowned by her parents for joining the church. With tears in her eyes, she took pen in hand and jotted a note to her parents in Vancouver. The note read something like this, Dear Mother and Father, I want to thank you with all of my heart for your kindness and for your understanding and for the teachings which you gave me in my youth. John and I have come across a great truth, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We have studied the discussions, and our baptism will take place next Saturday night. We hope you will understand. In fact, we hope that you will welcome the missionaries in your home as we welcome them in ours. The letter was sealed with a tear, a stamp was affixed, and it was mailed to Vancouver. On the very day it was received in Vancouver, the couple in Hamilton received a letter from the wife's mother and father. They wrote, We are far away from you, or we would surely talk to you in person. We want you to know that missionaries from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have called at our home, and we cannot deny the validity of their message. We have set a date for our baptism to take place next week. We hope you will understand and not be unduly critical of our decision. The gospel means so much to us and brought such happiness into our lives that we pray someday you might also agree to learn more about it. Can you imagine what happened when the couple in Hamilton received that letter from the wife's parents? They phoned mother and dad, and there were many tears of joy shed. I'm sure there was a long-distance embrace, for both families became members of the Church. You see, our Heavenly Father knows who we are, His sons and His daughters. He wants to bring into our lives the blessings for which we qualify. And He can do it. He can accomplish anything. Let me pause and say the wisdom of God oftentimes appears foolish in the sight of men. But the greatest lesson a man can learn in mortality is that when God speaks and a man obeys, that man will always be right. A visible and tender act of fellowshipping was witnessed in the ancient city of Rome. Some years ago, Sister Monson and I met with over 500 members there in a district conference. The presiding officer at that time was Leopoldo Larker, a wonderful Italian. His brother had been working as a guest employee in the auto plants in Germany when two missionaries taught him the gospel. He went back to Italy and taught the gospel to his brother. Leopoldo accepted and sometime later became the president of the Italy-Rome Mission and then the Italy-Catania Mission. During that meeting, I noticed that in the throng were many who were wearing a white carnation. I said to Leopoldo, What is the significance of the white carnation? He said, Oh, those are new members. We provide a white carnation to every member who has been baptized since our last district conference. 
Then all the members and all the missionaries know that these people are especially to be fellowshipped. I watch those new members being embraced, being greeted, being spoken to. They were no more strangers nor foreigners. They were fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Beyond the new convert to the Church are some who have drifted from that pathway which upward leads and for one reason or another have become less active for months, even years. Perhaps they were not fellowshipped. Maybe friends departed from their lives. Whatever the reason, the fact remains. We need them and they need us. Missionaries can effectively visit the homes where these individuals reside. When they approach, those within the shelter of home may come to remember the glorious feelings which came over them when they first heard the principles of the gospel taught to them. The missionaries can teach such individuals and witness the changes which come into their lives as they return to activity. They need friends with testimonies. They need to know that we truly care for the one. Heronic priesthood quorum advisors and young women teachers are on the line of battle, and miracles are within their grasp. Brethren, who is the teacher you best remember from your youth? I would guess that in all probability it was the one who knew your name, who welcomed you to class, and who was interested in you as a person and who truly cared. When a leader walks the pathway of mortality with a precious youth alongside, there develops a bond of commitment between the two that shields the youth from the temptations of sin and keeps him or her walking steadfastly on the path that leads onward, upward, and unswervingly to eternal life. Build a bridge to each youth. All of us here and abroad this evening must answer the call of our prophet, President Gordon B. Hinckley, to spare no effort in fellowshipping and reactivating those who need our help, our labors, and our testimonies. May I share with you visits to two state conferences where I evidenced the miracle which can take place when we take to heart the words of the pioneer hymn, Put Your Shoulder to the Wheel. One visit was to the Mill Creek Stake in Salt Lake City some years ago. Just over 100 brethren who were prospective elders had been ordained elders during the preceding year. I asked President James Clegg the secret of his success. He was too modest to take the credit. His counselor revealed that President Clegg, recognizing the challenge, had undertaken to personally call and arrange a private appointment between him and each prospective elder. Only seven declined. President Clegg would mention the temple, the temple of the Lord, the saving ordinances and covenants emphasized there, and would conclude with this question to the brother. Wouldn't you desire to take your sweet wife and your children to the house of the Lord that you might be a forever family throughout all eternity? An acknowledgment followed. The reactivation process was pursued, and the goal was obtained. 
The other visit was to the North Carbon Stake in Price, Utah, also many years ago. I noted during my visit that they had rescued 86 men from the prospective elders in one year and had taken them and their wives to the Manti Temple. I said to Cecil Broadbent, the president, How did you do it, president? He said, I didn't. My counselor, President Judd, did. President Judd was a large, ruddy-faced Welch coal miner. I said to him, President Judd, will you tell me how you were able to rescue 86 brethren in one year? I sat anticipating his answer, and he said, No. I was stunned. I'd never had anyone say no so directly in all my life. I asked why not. He said, Then you'll tell the other stake presidents you visit, and we won't lead the Church in reactivation. (laughs) He was smiling, though, so I knew it was half in jest. He said, I'll make a deal with you, Brother Monson. I'll tell you how we rescued 86 men in one year if you'll get me two tickets to General Conference. I said, You're on. And so he told me. What he didn't tell me is that he intended to collect interest every conference for the next 10 years. He came faithfully every six months for his two tickets and got them. In both the Mill Creek and the North Carbon Stakes, as well as in others which have been successful in this phase of the work, four principles have prevailed. One, the reactivation opportunity was handled at the ward level. Two, the bishop of the ward was involved. Three, qualified and inspired teachers were provided. And finally, attention was given to each individual. In building a bridge to the investigator, the new convert or the less active member, when we do our part, the Lord does His. I testify concerning this truth. When I served as a bishop, I noted one Sunday morning that one of our priests was missing from priesthood meeting. I felt prompted to leave the quorum in the care of the advisor and visited Richard's home. His mother said he was working at the West Temple garage. I drove to the garage in search of Richard, looked everywhere for him, but I couldn't find him. Suddenly I had the inspiration to gaze down into the old-fashioned grease pit situated at the side of the station. Peering into the darkness, I could see two shining eyes. Then I heard Richard say, You found me, Bishop. I'll come up. After that, he rarely missed a priesthood meeting. The family moved to a nearby stake. Time passed and I received a phone call informing me that Richard had been called to serve a mission in Mexico, and I was invited by the family to speak at his farewell. At the meeting, when Richard responded, he mentioned that the turning point in his determination to fill a mission came one Sunday morning, not in the chapel, but as he gazed up from the depths of a dark grease pit and found his quorum president's outstretched hand. Through the years, Richard has stayed in touch with me, telling of his testimony, his family, and his faithful service in the Church, including his present calling as a bishop. My beloved brethren, let us with faith unwavering and with love unstinting be bridge builders to the hearts of those with whom we labor, as in the movie Field of Dreams. If we build it,
they will come. Of this truth I testify, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My dear brethren, I prayerfully seek for your faith as I undertake the overwhelming responsibility of addressing this great body of priesthood holders. May I express my profound appreciation for your loyalty, faithfulness, and devotion. The work of God our Father goes forward as never before because of your commitment and devotion to this holy work. Brethren, we must never let the great powers of the holy priesthood lie dormant in us. We are bound together in the greatest cause and the most sacred work in all the world. To exercise these great powers, we must be clean in thought and action. We must do nothing which would impair the full exercise of this transcendent power. Priesthood is the greatest power on the earth. Worlds were created by and through the priesthood. To safeguard this sacred power, all priesthood holders act under the direction of those who hold the keys of the priesthood. These keys bring order into our lives and into the organization of the Church. For us, priesthood power is the power and authority delegated by God to act in His name for the salvation of His children. Caring for others is the very essence of priesthood responsibility. It is the power to bless, to heal, and to administer the saving ordinance of the gospel. Righteous priesthood authority is most needed within the walls of our own homes. It must be exercised in great love. This is true of all priesthood holders, deacon, teacher, priest, elder, high priest, patriarch, seventy, and apostle. I first learned the principle of priesthood caring from my own father and grandfather, but I have also seen it manifested by thousands of worthy men. I learned great lessons of priesthood caring as a teacher in the Aaronic priesthood. I was assigned to serve as a junior home teaching companion to a great Scandinavian immigrant named Algot Johnson from Malmo, Sweden. I learned to admire everything about him, including his endearing Swedish accent. He taught me the true meaning of the Lord's instruction to the teachers. The teacher's duty is to watch over the Church always and be with and strengthen them and see that there is no iniquity in the Church, neither hardness with each other, neither lying, backbiting, nor evil speaking, and see that the Church meet together often and see that, that all members do their duty. Brother Johnson had paid a great price to leave his beloved Sweden and come to the United States. He was very dedicated. Despite the difference in our ages, we became lifelong friends. When he became our ward Sunday school superintendent, he asked for me to be his counselor. I was only 17 years of age. He was a successful contractor, and when I returned home from World War II, he built my first home. When I graduated from law school, I did legal work for him. And when I billed him for my legal services, he paid me more than I asked. That did not happen very often. (laughs) 
I cite this experience to emphasize the importance of giving every ironic priesthood holder the opportunity to serve as a junior companion to faithful Melchizedek priesthood holders. The duty of home teachers cannot always be satisfied with a once-a-month visit. They need to be caring and willing to serve as the need arises. I know of members of one high priest group who take tools when they go home teaching. Now, we do not expect home teachers to be able to fix everything, such as computers and other high-technical equipment. They can, however, offer their wisdom and experience in assisting their assigned families to find the needed help. Caring home teachers should make appointments in advance if possible. Ronic priesthood home teaching companions can learn lifelong lessons and be greatly blessed by serving with faithful Melchizedek priesthood senior companions. Brother Robert F. Jeksh shares his faith-strengthening experience as a junior home teaching companion many years ago. My legs felt like gelatin, and there was a knot in my stomach as we approached the door. I was sure that I was going to faint as my home teaching companion told me this was my door. I was a 15-year-old home teacher climbing the stairs to the apartment of Sister Rice, a widow living in the bountiful Utah First Ward. Don Gabbett, my companion, was to teach me a great lesson that night about the nurturing role of priesthood bearers to shut-ins who were cut off from the mainstream of church activity. Brother Gabbett had given me a topic to present to five families assigned to us, and I was frightened. I had prepared some notes on a paper, but I was unsure of how to take the lead in the presence of a high priest. The response to our knocking was slow. I was about to suggest that no one was home. Then a shrunken figure of a frail, aged sister came round the corner in the hallway. She seemed uncertain of what waited for her answer at the door. Her face brightened as she recognized Brother Gabbett. We were invited into her living room and asked to take a seat. After a short greeting, Brother Gabbett looked at me as if to say, Okay, Bob, it's time to give you our message. The knot in my stomach tightened as I began to speak. I cannot recall what I said. It really doesn't matter, for I was, in the, I was a pupil in the classroom of priesthood duty and responsibility. As I glanced up from my notes at the conclusion of my remarks, my eyes fell upon the tear-stained cheeks of that sweet, sensitive sister. She expressed her gratitude for the priesthood presence of priesthood bearers in her humble home. I was speechless. What had I said that had been so profound? What could I do? Fortunately, Brother Gabbett came to my rescue by bearing his testimony and asking if there were any needs in the home. There were. Sister Rice said that she had not been feeling well and asked that she be remembered as we offered our prayer before leaving. She turned to me and asked if I would offer that prayer. By that time, I was overcome by the spirit of the occasion and surprised that I was asked to pray when someone older and more experienced and trusted was present. 
automatically I consented and offered a benediction upon that home teaching visit, asking that a special blessing of health and strength be given to that faithful sister whom I barely knew but quickly came to love and respect. Twenty-five years have passed since my introduction to home teaching in the home of Sister Rice, and she has long since passed away. But I cannot pass that orange brick fourplex on Bountiful Main Street without thinking about the experience provided by Brother Gabbett and a faithful sister who knew the appropriateness of calling upon the powers of heaven embodied in an obedient high priest and an insecure, frightened teacher in the ironic priesthood. I wish to say a word to our faithful and devoted bishops. I recently reread in the Melchizedek Priesthood Leadership Handbook the responsibilities of the bishops. These responsibilities are heavy and often quite demanding. Some duties the bishop cannot delegate, but others can and should be handled by his counselors, fathers, home teachers, and quorum leaders. Many years ago, we were taught by President Lee a fuller meaning of the direction of the Lord. Let every man stand in his own office and labor in his calling. He said, It becomes the responsibility of those of us who lead to let, to permit, to give the opportunity for every man to learn his duty. Help is not helpful if we assume the prerogatives that belong to that individual. This fuller understanding also means that the presiding officer of the Church should be careful not to usurp the responsibilities and duties of those they are called to direct. Bishops, as you serve in this great calling, you may be able to influence more lives for good than at any other time in your life. While you are enjoying the mantle of a bishop and presiding high priest, you have special spiritual endowments of wisdom, insight, and inspiration concerning the welfare of your people. As president of the Aaronic Priesthood and of the Priest Quorum, you have particular interest and concern for the youth, both boys and girls. I have discussed the duty of priesthood leaders and members to care for their families, quorums, wards, and stakes. I should like now to discuss another aspect of priesthood responsibility, which is our privilege to sustain those in authority over us. Wilfred Woodruff recorded a remarkable account which illustrates the importance of this responsibilities. In the early days of the Church, President Brigham Young asked Wilfred Woodruff to take his family to Boston and gather the saints from New England and Canada and send them to Zion. With a company of 100, they arrived at Pittsburgh at sundown. Brother Woodruff recorded, we did not want to stay there, so we went to the first steamboat that was going to leave. I saw the captain engage passage for us on that steamer. I had only just done so when the Spirit said to me, Don't go aboard that steamer nor your company. Of course, I went and spoke to the captain and told him that I had made up my mind to wait. Well, that ship started and had only got five miles down the river when it took fire, 
and 300 persons were burned to death or drowned. What if the saints had not followed the counsel of Wilford Woodruff, all wisely chose to be obedient? Had they not done so, they would have perished. In my lifetime, there have been very few occasions when I question the wisdom and the inspiration given by a key priesthood leaders. I have always tried to follow their counsel, whether I agreed with it or not. I have come to know that most of the time they were in tune with the Spirit, and I was not. The safe course is to sustain our priesthood leaders and let God judge their actions. In the early days of the Church, many fell away because they would not sustain Joseph Smith as the Lord's anointed. In fact, the Prophet Joseph said of some of the leaders in Kirtland that there have been but two, but what have lifted their heel against me, namely Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball. Because of their faithful loyalty, the Lord called Brigham Young to lead the Church West. And when the First Presidency was reorganized, Heber C. Kimball was called as First Counselor to Brigham Young. I do not speak of blind obedience, but rather the obedience of faith, which supports and sustains the decisions with confidence that they are inspired. I advocate being more in tune with the Spirit so that we may feel a confirming witness of the truthfulness of the direction we receive from our priesthood leaders. There is great safety and peace in supporting our priesthood leaders in their decisions. The priesthood of this Church carries the responsibility to help move the work of righteousness in all the world. Priesthood service requires us to set aside our selfish interests and desires. Brethren, we need to prepare so that we are able to accept priesthood callings should they come. We should try to live providently with respect to our own personal lifestyles. Living providently means living well within our means and providing for future needs and events. We should avoid the bondage of crushing unnecessary indebtedness. We should also try to have some savings to tide us over for a rainy day. In short, we should seek to manage our affairs so that we are better able to accept the calls which might come to us now as well as in the future. You young men need to understand that this greatest of all the priest powers, the priesthood power, is not accessed the way power is used in the world. It cannot be sought or bought or sold. In the book of Acts, we learn that a man called Simon wanted to buy the priesthood power of the apostles to lay on hands and bestow the Holy Ghost. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Many of you watch and admire linebackers, power forwards, and centers, as well as those who wield wealth, fame, political, and military power. Worldly power is often employed ruthlessly. However, priesthood power is invoked only through the principles of righteousness by which the priesthood is governed. The Lord has said, No power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood, only by persuasion, by long-suffering, by gentleness, 
and meekness and by love unfeigned, by kindness and the pure knowledge which shall greatly enlarge the soul without hypocrisy and without guile. Let thy bowels also be full of charity towards all men and to the household of faith, and let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. Then shall thy confidence wax strong in the presence of God, and the doctrine of the priesthood shall distill upon thy soul as the dews are heaven. We are told that many are called, but few are chosen. One who is chosen is one who is the object of divine favor. Brethren, how may we be chosen? We may be chosen only when we are chosen by God. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever she shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This happens only when the heart and the soul are transformed when we have striven with all our heart, might, mind, and soul to keep all of the commandments of God, it happens when we have kept the oath and covenant which belongeth to the priesthood. Thus, we may become the sons of Moses and of Aaron and the seed of Abraham and the church and kingdom and elect of God. President Stephen L. Richards, a former counselor in the First Presidency, said, I have reached the conclusion in my own mind that no man, however great his intellectual attainments, however vast or far-reaching his service may be, arrives at the full measure of his sonship and the manhood the Lord intended him to have without the full investiture of the holy priesthood. And with that appreciation, my brethren, I have given thanks to the Lord all my life for this marvelous blessing which has come to me, a blessing that some of my progenitors had, a blessing which, more than any other heritage, I want my sons and my grandsons and my great-grandsons to enjoy. May we strive to keep the oath and covenant of the priesthood and qualify for and receive all its eternal blessings God has for his faithful sons. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.